0: One of the things we say, too, is the most important decisions about your career are made when you're not in the room, whether you're going to get a promotion, whether you're going to get a pay increase, all those things. So making sure there's somebody who's in that room who's speaking for you. Is really important.
1: You're listening to The Life and Money
2: Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them.
1: And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Life and Money Show. I'm Annie Dickerson here with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I am doing fantastic.
2: How are you? What's new with you over there in Kensington?
1: Um, I'm loving life in Kensington. For those of our listeners who may not know, Kensington is a tiny little town just north of Berkeley. And we moved here from Oakland a few months ago now, and it's very different, but we love it. Oakland is a big city, and Kensington is a tiny little town, but still with all of the amenities of the Greater Bay Area, and not only that... Some of our listeners know I'm such a sucker for a good view, and I've been trying to manifest a house of the view for many years now. It's been on my vision board. I've talked about it on podcasts and in videos. It's just something that I always wanted, but deep down, if I'm honest with myself, I didn't feel like I deserved it until earlier this year. I had a conversation with my coach and she said, well, if you had a house with a view, would you do your best work? And I thought about it and I said, you know what? I would because I would be so inspired by the view. And that would give me that perspective that life is bigger than just me. And it would remind me every day of the impact that we're making through the work that we're doing. And through that, it unleashed something in me, and then things started to fall into place. And a few months ago, we moved into this house that we're in now, which is at the top of a hill in Kensington, and we have these sweeping views of the Bay Area, and I could not be more inspired every day, just looking out the window, seeing the sunrise and the sunset and the clouds moving through and the beautiful colors and the cars in the distance and just reminding me of the breadth of life. And I bring that up because everybody finds inspiration in different places. And for me, It's through that view that gives me that inspiration and that fuel. But inspiration can come from all sorts of different places. It can come from hearing somebody else's story. It can come from books. It can come from movies. It can come from even something like a Starbucks cup. And I bring that up because our guest today is none other than Bonnie St. John. She's the best-selling author of several books, sought-after keynote speaker, Olympic skier and medalist and CEO of the Blue Circle Leadership Institute, and her story is absolutely phenomenal. From the time she was a young child, she was faced with a big decision at just five years old that changed the whole trajectory of her life. But she didn't stop there because her story is one of courage and perseverance. And she went on to do amazing things. She sort of fell into skiing, but you'll hear in this conversation how she persevered and she was very resourceful. In learning how to ski. And then as she got into it, at the Olympics, at that race, she learned a big lesson, which ultimately was the quote that ended up on that Starbucks cup. But in this conversation, we dive into so many different topics that are so important to talk about and that can really inspire so many different people.
2: Yes, such an inspirational woman to have on our show. It was so fun being able to pick her brain on what it was like to... Be her growing up. And it was so fun talking about what it was like with her mom, because it sounds like her mom was played such a big role in making her the woman that she became today. And I think about it a lot over since we recorded the show. And the one thing that she said that stood out in my mind is that she said her mom didn't coddle her and didn't allow her to have excuses. And I was raised very similarly. My mom never coddled me. I was taught to do everything on my own and take care of my mom when I was very young and led me to be a very strong and independent woman. And I feel like a lot of similarities between maybe how I was raised and how she was raised and just the result there and what happens as a woman. And yeah, we got to dive in and talk about some of the tools that she's teaching women that's allowing them to get ahead in the corporate world. And it was fun. Lots of good stuff that I think a lot of women need to hear in terms of what's working for other women and what isn't working for other women. And I think at some point in the show towards the end, we talked about persistence being one of the key traits that she felt like has allowed her to be where she is at. And that's something I always say whenever I'm asked about characteristics for making someone successful in real estate or otherwise. I always answer persistence because life is always going to throw us curveballs and nothing is ever going to be perfect. And so long as we are committed to success and we are persistent about what it is that we're going after, we will win. So I love that. And my favorite part was at the very end of the show, where she shared a story about this moment when she was up on the hill, and she was in the Olympics, and she was about to head down the mountain. And she learned a very big lesson there um, that day and was so good. But I won't spoil it. But fantastic show, wonderful guest and so many good things that we talked about.
1: So much wisdom and just insight about life as well as leadership that she shares on this show. And for all of our listeners, you should know that Bonnie St. John also invests in real estate. So on top of all this stuff that she does to help others, she's also building her own wealth and investing in a lot of different things, real estate among them. And so for any of our listeners, if you're on that path as well, you're starting out, you're learning about passive real estate investing, a great place to start is to get a copy of our book. Book. It's called Investing for Good, and we have a free hardcover copy for all of you. Just go to goodegginvestmentscom book. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Bonnie St. John. Bonnie, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. I'm so excited to be here.
0: You guys just have the best energy. Oh, stop.
1: our listeners are in for such a treat today. I can't believe you're here. You're such an inspiration. And in fact, you've been named one of the top five most inspirational women in America. I swear my husband's jaw dropped when I said I was going to talk to one of the top five most inspirational women in America. And your story of strength, of courage, of perseverance has literally touched the lives of millions of people around the world. And I want to start the conversation today with an experience early in your life that had a huge impact on your journey. And I think in many ways, experiences that we have and the decisions we make as children can deeply shape the people that we become and the character that we ultimately develop. And so start by taking us back to when you were a young child. It just five years old, you had an impossibly big life decision put in front of you that most adults wouldn't even know how to navigate. And that decision was one that would ultimately impact the entire trajectory of your life. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Well, at age five, they came to me and said, we think we should amputate your leg, my right leg, and I had had a birth defect. So the growth was stunted in my leg. I was born with two normal legs, but then as I grew, one leg wasn't growing as much as it should be. So the more I grew, the more different my legs were. In order to walk, I had a brace, a metal brace, and I wore white orthopedic shoes. Kids picked on me on the playground. I couldn't run and couldn't play reindeer games, you know, like <laughs> grew it off the no, it was reindeer. So I was different from all the other kids and that was challenging. And so then when they said they were going to cut off my leg, I remember saying, does that mean I can wear two normal shoes with both my feet on the ground? I was like, great, cut it off. And so I was so happy to get my leg, even though back then it looked like this Pinocchio leg, it was made of wood and it stuck out in funny ways. But I was really happy to have two legs that were more normal than they had been but I still got teased by other kids and I was never going to make a like sports team in school or anything like that. So it was still challenging, but I made the best of it. And then ultimately started skiing.
1: Yeah. And so that's the twist in the story, right? Like here you are, your leg was amputated at such a young age. But it sounds like you were very resilient through that time, even through the teasing. And we know how playgrounds can be and how mean kids can be. But it sounds like you were able to carry yourself through that time and almost through a fluke. It sounds like you started skiing and then here you are an Olympic medalist. But tell us about that.
0: Well, when you talk about the positivity, wow, it's amazing as a kid you did that. I got to give a lot of credit to my mother. She was the kind of person who didn't take a lot of excuses. She expected me to do chores around the house. She didn't say, oh, poor Bonnie, just sit on the couch, Bonnie, your brother and sister will do everything. No way. I had to clean the house and wash the dishes and do everything they did. She expected a lot from me. And I think that's important. And she had been through a lot herself. She had gone to segregated schools when she was little, She had to walk past the big beautiful school for the white kids and go to the rundown crappy school with no books. So she had been through a lot. So she didn't coddle me. She didn't see my problems on heart. (laughs) So she expected me to be tough. She expected a lot from me. And I think that's a good message. She did things to try to help me. So finding, I went to the Shriners Hospital to have all my surgeries, finding a way to better my situation was good. And she did little things, which I didn't know until many, many years later. She spent more on my bicycle than she did on my brothers and sisters. And so it was a lighter bike. She was trying to give me a lift, but she never said it. And so there was no, oh, you're special.
1: It was just, you know, can you have a bike, go riding. And you have kids, Annie, right? Do you have kids, Julie? We have five kids between the two of us. Julie's (laughs) got three and I've got two. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) So you can appreciate That would be tough for a parent to just sort of do things behind the scene, not say anything, don't make it a big deal, have high expectations, but at the same time, try to give some support too. So yeah, she was an interesting mom. She's gone now, but she was a handful of conflicts. She was complicated.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like she probably shaped you in so many ways. Just the fact that she didn't treat you any differently, that must have been a different experience. than what you saw anywhere else, right? Like you go out of the house, you were treated differently by different kids and maybe teachers, but here your mom towed the line. She was like, "Uh uh-uh, you're going to be exactly the same. You think you're going to have excuses? No-uh.
0: So I tended to expect a lot from myself too. Just being in PE at school, I expected myself to do it. I didn't say, oh, I can't do it. It's swimming with one leg. I can't wear my leg in the pool. And they'd say, get in the pool and do backstroke across the pool on your back and with just your feet. And (laughs) that was hard, (laughs) but I would just do it. I look back and I think, why didn't I just say, I can't do it. Nope. Never did.
2: Yeah. How do you think that that expectation played a role in all of the amazing things that you've done as an adult now? I'm so curious because I'm a high expectations kind of mama And I always wonder sometimes if I'm being too hard on my kids and if I should, oh, but they just went through this or, oh, but they're going through that. And I'm the same way. And I have two girls. And so I'm just curious as a woman, how do you feel like that has shaped your drive and your hunger and your desire and your passion to help other women? Talk to us a little bit about that.
0: I guess it has instilled an in idea that anything is possible and that we can do anything. Looking at her story and how much she had to overcome, she went to college, which was really difficult for her because she didn't have a lot of financial support and she struggled and got through and had kids, got married. And then went back and got her PhD. So she was always overcoming odds and jumping over other people's expectations. So they say kids learn by example more than anything else. We worry about what we do as parents and the decisions we make, but they're looking at your example. Julie and Annie, what a great example for them to look at, right? You're both entrepreneurs, you're intelligent, you're making a difference for people. This podcast, Life and Money is a lot about how do we create the life that we want? And I think that's what they're going to pay attention to more than anything you say. That's what we're talking about with my mother too—is who she was, spoke as loud as anything she told you you had to oh, do. Yeah, I love that so much.
2: I'll remember that. <laughs> I'm gonna remember well, that you way.
0: two are pretty badass, so I think your kids are going to be inspired. Oh, thank you.
1: We'll see. I don't know. They need some shaping up kids these days, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: well, I, actually, I
0: was thinking of something as you said, that I'm a Tiger mom, too. And my mom was not a Tiger mom. She was not somebody that said, Here's a card for your practice for your violin on Wednesday, do these five things. She was not a micromanager at all. In fact, truth be told, it's funny, I don't talk about this very much, but. I ended up falling asleep on the floor a lot of times and not going and wake up at three in the morning and go, oh, I got to get myself to bed. She was a single mom with three kids. She worked her tail off. She wasn't micromanaging me. And so, and I'm not suggesting that people do that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's just, she encouraged us to dream big. She would give us help with things, but she wasn't there driving me to skiing every day. I had to figure it out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I imagine that must have been difficult as a single mom, because you were very committed to skiing once you got into it. It must have been a lot of practices, a lot of commitment.
0: And we lived in San Diego. So there was no, it wasn't oh, like yeah. the ski oh, central, yeah, yeah. the ski. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the first year that I was doing racing, I was going up every weekend to the mountains and I would either get a bus, there was a bus trip that would go that I could go on and go up for the weekend. There was Sometimes I would take the train up to LA and go with some people from LA who were driving up to the mountains, but I didn't have a car. I couldn't drive. And so I had to figure it out, like I said, and she wasn't driving me every weekend to go skiing. And then after that, I left, I went to Vermont and there was a ski academy, I rode away and got a full scholarship to go to the ski academy. I thought, okay, it's too hard for me to get the training I need by going weekends in uh, Southern California. But if I move to the ski racing school, then I can finish high school, get into college, but have skiing right out the back door and all the coaches living in the same compound. So I was looking for solutions. And that was a solution was to leave home. <laughs> <So> like <laughs> 15, I think. And I ended up never really coming back because I went and I skied and trained and then I skied on a glacier over the summers and then I went to college. And I looked back when I was halfway through college and I thought, wow, I left home at 15 and never really went back.
2: So I have a question. When you're five years old and you have to have your leg amputated, immediately you must think that maybe doing sports like you mentioned might not be for you. So I'm curious, how did you get into skiing was it, you saw someone doing it and you thought, hey, I can do that too. It doesn't matter what my situation is. I can do it too. Like, how did you even get into it in the first place?
0: Great question. And my mom was not big on sports. She was not a sporty person. And so our family was not really sporty. So it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do sports as a family, but Bonnie has one leg. It just wasn't even a thing. But a friend of mine in high school invited me to go skiing with her family over Christmas vacation. She actually made a coupon out of a notebook, notebook, that blue line notebook paper. Probably kids don't even use that anymore. A coupon for my birthday that said, good for one week of skiing. And that I, I remember I had seen Teddy Kennedy Jr. skiing on one leg. It mm-hmm. wasn't as prevalent back then as now. There's a lot more available information and videos on YouTube and everything. But back then there wasn't a lot. But I had seen Teddy Kennedy Jr. skiing and I was aware that one-legged people could ski. So I said to Barbara, great, I'd love to go. And then I had to research and find, I knew they had the outriggers, the poles with the little ski tips on the end. Where do I get those? And I called a ski area. They said, we don't know where we get them. I called a sporting goods shop. They were like, no idea. I had to do a lot of research. And I finally found a club of amputees that skied in Southern California. And the president of the club agreed to lend me his outriggers so I could go on that first trip with her. Anyway, so you had to be resourceful. Wow.
2: Oh my gosh. That is so inspiring because I think so often, and even in real estate and investing, a lot of women get these roadblocks up that say, I can't do that. That's so scary. What if I make a mistake? What if I fall down? What if it doesn't work out? And to say, I'm going to find a way. I want to try this out and I'm going to be resourceful. And I'm going to figure this out is so much of what we always talk about on the show and what we always talk about what you need to have to be able to succeed in the investing world, because there's going to be these obstacles left and right. And so that's so awesome too. What a great friend to believe in you and be like, yeah, come on, Bonnie, let's go. One oh, and not. Then like, Let's go.
0: When we went and it's funny because it's so much more common now, but back then it really wasn't. And so we went to the ski area with her family. I got the outriggers ahead of time and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get a lesson. So when I called the ski area and said coming, they said, yeah, but we don't have anybody who can train a one-legged person. So the conclusion was just go on the bunny hill and fall down. We don't <laughs> have anyone who could teach you. So it right. won't. And that's the way things were done back then. But nowadays, almost every ski area has somebody on staff who's probably certified to teach people with disabilities. And they will come out and do that. And it's just so much more common now. But then the solution was no lesson at all. I had sent away to a group in Colorado that did a lot. Okay, when I say a book, that's an exaggeration. It was really like a stack of paper stapled. I don't know if somebody wrote a book and they copied it for me. I don't know. But it was how to ski on one leg. And so it told me, you know, I read a book and this is classic. I'm such a nerd. I went to <laughs> so I read, I didn't have an instructor, but I read about how to ski on one leg. And Barbara, to her credit, when she was a good skier, her family went skiing all the time, but she stuck with me on the bunny hill.
1: Oh. Do you two ski, Annie and Julie?
0: Oh my I'm God, this is, ma-
1: oh, this is no making me like cower in shame. I'm like, oh my gosh, if you could ski on one leg, why couldn't I do it on two? I'm a terrible snow person. <laughs> well, so normally the way you start skiing on two legs is you snowplow
0: and I they tell the kids pizza pie, right? As so you angle your skis together and that helps slow you down so you don't get out of control. One leg, there's no snowplow, right? Ain't no pizza pie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so you have to balance on one leg and then you can't slow down. So I got on the bunny hill and I fell, I fell a lot without even going anywhere. But finally, once I started going anywhere, I would get out of control. I couldn't slow down. I'd crash into men, women, small children. <laughs> so it was really difficult for the first few days because I couldn't slow down. I couldn't snowplow. I couldn't control it. And Barbara stuck with me. She could have gone anywhere on the hill. And there she was trapped on the bunny hill with me falling and falling and falling and getting up. She was such a great friend. And after about three days, I finally learned how to turn right and turn left well enough so that you can stop by turning, right? And so Julie probably gets that, oh, snowboard, you do the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So then we're there for a week. And by midweek, I could turn right, I could turn left, which meant I could slow down, I could stop. I could go on intermediate slopes because what happens to two-legged beginners as they pick up speed, their tips cross and they crash, right? Right. Where they're trying to snow plow and they've got to unlearn snow plowing. I didn't have to unlearn snow plowing. I'm intermediate skiing. So it was really hard at first, but then actually it became sort of an advantage because I could go fast. I could turn right and left. I could go on intermediate slopes. So Barbara stuck with me. Barbara's amazing. So we've stayed in touch. And during the pandemic, we were actually going to virtual church together and either in her town or my town, some other church we found. So it was kind of fun. Church hopping. church hopping together. And, <laughs> church hopping together. So, and she's amazing. Since then, she did a stint in the Peace Corps. At one point, I visited her and she was living with her family in a camp that was to resettling refugees. So when refugees come and move to the U.S. and they're trying to figure out the language and get a job and everything, they could come to this camp and live and work and study English. And then find a way to resell it. what an incredible human being. Totally.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh man. It sounds like you had a lot of very strong and powerful women around you. Just and like it... now just like yes, that. There... <laughs> there we go. Well, and it's interesting you say that
0: too, because part of what our company does now is, I mean, it's sort of one of our our signature programs is women's leadership and fostering women's leadership in corporate America today.
1: Why do you think that is so important, especially today?
0: There's a lot of messages women get. It's funny because we've been doing this for a long time and you learn a lot about what are some of the ways women behave or the messages we get that can hold us back. To put it really simply, I think one of the things is, is that we are given the message when we're growing up that somebody will ask you to the prom, somebody will ask you to marry them. And so you're supposed to wait. And if you're a good girl and you've done everything right, someone will ask you. And so women are often in corporate America doing that, work with a lot of multicultural women too. And so they think if I put my head down, work through lunch, and I do good work. Somebody will promote me, somebody will get me ahead. And that doesn't usually work, especially for multicultural women. People don't just assume you want a promotion and assume that you want to get ahead. And so if you're very quiet, you often don't move forward and you don't know what's possible and you don't know. So anyway, so we, in our courses, we do a lot of teaching them the unwritten rules about how to find out where the opportunities are, how to steer your career where you want it to go, not just hope that people will put you where you you ought to go. And it's amazing. the transform. It's a virtual course that we run for women in different companies and we work with the company. So, you know, people are going to be listening and thinking, I'm going to sign up for the course, but we don't offer it that way. We offer it through companies. That's good because then we're partnering with the company to make sure that they're not just showing up, expecting more and expecting to enlist more support. They're being met halfway by the company as well. But yeah, it's an amazing process to watch these women blossom and start looking around and seeing what's possible, asking for help, asking for what they want. It's a seven month course. And we started to realize women were getting promotions before they even finished the course. They were starting to use the tools and the ideas in the second and third month and might even have a promotion by the fourth or fifth month.
1: Oh my gosh, that resonates so deeply with me and my experience of just being told growing up, you just do your best. You do your best, but you don't say anything. You just don't ask for anything. get along, yeah. don't ask for anything, but you just do your job. And then somebody will notice, somebody will pluck you right up. Your fairy and show up. Yeah. Yes. And I waited. Well, fortunately for me, I was kind of a silent rebel in a way. And so I wasn't going to sit still. I wasn't going to ask, but I still wasn't going to sit still. I had nine jobs in the 10 years after college. I was hopping around chasing impact and I couldn't quite find my place. And Until We started this business. (laughs) But in the meantime, I was going from one place to the next and nobody asked me, nobody plucked me up. There was no fairy godmother. I was just like, okay, well, if it's not okay, I'm going to try something else. But I think in some ways that it really helped me because even though I wasn't asking, I was sort of shaping my own experience and it's so great to hear that there's support for women out there because I think it's such an important thing, such an important message for women to hear that you don't need to wait around, that there's not a knight in shining armor knight coming shining to save armor. you. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> you gotta, right. You, you can gotta take...
0: put your hand up and look for yeah. opportunities and ask for what you want. And unfortunately. What I've also seen is some women will do that. They will clam up and they'll put their head down, work hard and hope. And when it doesn't work out, then they get angry and then they become that angry woman. And that's not going to work either. That's really not a good strategy. And so it's this being in the conversation, seeking people who can endorse you or open doors for you or put your name in for that promotion. One of the things we say too, is the most important decisions about your career are made when you're not in the room whether you're going to get a promotion, whether you're going to get a pay increase, all those things. So making sure there's somebody who's in that room who's speaking for you is really important. But doing it in a way that's amenable and you're like, hey, great, this is all good. Not like you better give me this, I deserve this, I'm leaving. You don't want to be in that place. You mentioned some tools
2: that you teach in your course that are allowing some women to even get where they're wanting to go ahead of time. What are some of those tools? You mentioned one just now trying to create a close relationship with somebody who might have a seat at the table. What are some other things that you're teaching that you're seeing really works for women?
0: One of the important topics we cover is informal networking, is having those informal relationships with people where they know you. And it's interesting. One of the things I've learned is women who are in our courses who are from the Caribbean say that they're Culture, they tend to get told, you don't take any of your personal stuff to work. You go to work, you work, you leave, you know, nothing personal. And that actually doesn't work in your favor. Is if people are going to trust you, the higher you go, the more trust becomes very important. You trust people that you feel like you know beyond just a memo or the last meeting that you were in. If you feel like you know somebody's values, like we we're joking about having kids and where are you from? And so being able to feel like you know somebody gives you that trust. And it's people who are trusted that are going to get put in positions of responsibility in higher up. So anyway, so we talk about that? And we uncovered a little bit. And a lot of people, again, are given the message that if you just do your work in a really objective way, that informal relationship shouldn't be necessary. Isn't that cheating, that informal relationship? And no, it's about trust. And it's one thing to build trust with your peers or the people who report to you, but building trust upwards, that can be more awkward. And especially for women or Hispanic women, black women or Asian women is you can be deferential, right? We're taught a lot about being deferential people in authority above us. You don't bother them. So anyway, so getting past all that, that's one topic we look at telling and selling your value, helping other people to understand the value and the impact that you have. It's another topic that we spend time on and we get a lot of messages about don't brag and you get the humble brag or, oh, you're terrible. But if you think of it as equipping other people to go to bat for you, don't expect them to be mind reader. Equip them with here's the facts about what I'm doing, the impact I'm having in my job. So let me arm you with the facts so that you go to bat for me. So lots of ideas that we found make a big difference for the women in our courses at Blue Circle Leadership.
1: We'll get back to our conversation with Bonnie in just a minute. Have you been thinking about
3: investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives.
1: And now, back to our chat with Bonnie St. John. I feel like the telling and
2: selling your value one is one that I think a lot of women have a hard time seeing themselves. And then they get on the phone. Some of my coaching clients, we have lots of conversations around this and they'll come to the conversation feeling like they have nothing to give. These are women who are doing really amazing things, who are also mothers, who are also in some instances working a W-2 job while they're running a side business, (laughs) like coming to the table, feeling like they have no value. And I'm just like, wow. And we'll just sit there and like run through all of the amazing things that they do. But it's sometimes just needing that permission. I feel like as a woman, I feel like I seek these conversations with other strong women to give me that permission. And I don't know why. I don't know why I need that or where that comes from. It's a weird thing. And so I'm assuming you guys do a lot of that, like the permission thing, like encouraging and saying,
0: yes, you can. But also, quantifying either in dollar terms or just in number terms, what are the facts of what you're doing? So I'll challenge you guys. So Annie and Julie, give me an example is what are some of the ways in which you're doing what you do better? What are some of the facts that show how many deals have you done? How many millions have you done? Go ahead. Uh, like, yeah. me- <laughs> <laughs> how many well,
1: all right. Well, here are the facts. In the three years we've been in business, we've done over 30 commercial real estate deals with a portfolio of over now $900 million. We have thousands of investors and happy investors. We've paid out. Like investors There we go. There we go. I guess those are the facts. Is that right? Yeah.
0: Well done, and that probably was uncomfortable when you first started doing it, right? But oh yeah, yes. you're, you're like <laughs> we're badass, and I can say it. And those facts are so much better than just trying to say, "Well, we're really good at what we do. We've been doing it for a long time. People are really happy." When you state the facts, it's in a way it's easier than bragging in a general way
1: hmm mm-hmm. I'm taking notes for my kids too. My relationship with my husband too. I mean, these aren't just for workplace. These are communication skills and life skills, frankly, that will serve you in any avenue in life.
0: Uh, and we've talked about women and multicultural women, but we also have courses with multicultural men in them. And we have one course that has all of the ERGs in a company. So if people who don't know what ERGs are, It's the special interest groups. And so within many companies, they have groups that support those groups. So we have in one course, we have not only multicultural women, all women, but we also have veterans and people with disabilities, parents, another group. So in that course, we have all of those people and talk reflecting on what are their challenges that make it harder for them to excel and how do we overcome those. So it's really rewarding work, but it makes sense because... In my life, he started out asking me things about, you know, well, how did you start skiing? That must have been hard. And then, well, how did you get into racing and start racing and then get to the Olympics and then going to college and then going to Oxford? There were barriers at each level. And I thought, once I've been to the Olympics, then everything else will be easy, right? Well, it isn't that way. There were always challenges and there are always ways in which I had to take risks and stick my neck out and believe in myself in order to do something. When I got asked to apply for a job at the White House, it was interesting because they called me and said, are you interested? Do you want to apply for this job in the White House? And I was like, yes. And then they said, okay, well, we'll call you back and tell you when you should come out to DC for the interview. And I didn't get a call back. And I would try to call back. And you can imagine This was in the run-up to before the inauguration. So there's the transition period, right? So we've got people working on the transition. And so it's crazy. I tried to call back and people weren't answering the phones and I would would call back like three times in one day and then wait till the next day and then try to call back again. And I finally get somebody on the phone and they'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we're trying to organize that interview we told you about, but we'll call you back. And then they don't call back. Finally, I got somebody on the phone and they said, well, we think we're going to do the interviews next week on Tuesday. Can you make it? And I said, yes, I'll just go. Actually, it wasn't even that much notice. I'm saying next week on Tuesday, it was really short notice. Because I remember I took a red-eye flight. (laughs) (laughs) I I basically just jumped on a plane and said, I'll be there. Let's do the interviews. And I got there and Thurgood Marshall had died and they were having his funeral. So... Everything was, all bets were off. So I ended up sitting in the lobby of the West Wing, just waiting for hours for, they wanted me to do three different interviews with people. And so I was just waiting till this person opened up, till this person was available, that person was available, and did all the interviews and went home and got offered the job. But but if I hadn't just jumped on the plane, it never would have happened. And I remember talking to somebody else and they said, oh yeah, I was going to be offered a job in the White House, but they didn't want to hire me because they never called me back. And I said, well, they never called me back either, but I ended up getting a job in the White House. So I've learned to be persistent and believe in myself, and that can make
2: all the difference. I get asked that often, what is the one thing that you think the one characteristic or the one quality that you need to have to be successful in real estate? I get asked that on podcasts all the time. And the one thing I always come back to is persistence, because in the world of real estate, there's always going to be things that want to knock you down and hold you back and ways that you could give yourself excuses to not push forward. And if you can be persistent, and like you said, believe in yourself, that's what it boils down to having success. the space i do want to save some time because i do want to ask you quickly how did you get into investing? So I know you've done a little bit of investing with us, but how were you introduced to the world of investing? Was it by happen chance, like you just happened to stumble across an investment? You said, this looks good, or you were trying to build wealth? or
0: You know, what's funny is all my life, I've been really curious about why some people succeed and others don't. And I said, I came from a family without a lot of money. So I didn't grow up with everybody investing around me or anything like that. <laughs> but I remember... I think it was like seventh or eighth grade that I learned about the difference between labor and capital and decided I wanted to be capital. (laughs) (laughs) And so I looked at, I went to courses on how to run a small business and things like that. And I did go into my own business. I've had my own business now for more than 20 years and grown that as well. So I've worked on Wall Street. Uh, I had an internship on Wall Street when I was in college. And so I've always been really interested in, investment and what that means and what that means in terms of how you make money, how you are successful. And it's not just about having a job. Having a job is great. But if you can be an investor, that that makes all the difference. So it's sort of something I dreamed about even since I was a child. When I've done a lot of different kinds of investment, I've bought houses, I've bought stocks and bonds and everything. And so being able to invest in real estate is just part of diversifying how I do that. What does it mean to you to be an investor? That's interesting. I'm very patriotic as well. (laughs) I worked in the White House and represented the U.S. in the Mm -hmm. international games. And part of it for me is it's about the engine of growth in a free country, is investing means being part of what makes this country strong and what makes this country great. I love it. It's interesting when I
2: first really realized what a real investor means to me was the moment that everything kind of changed. And I realized that this is who I wanted to be was a real estate investor. And it didn't mean that I loved real estate. And I know Annie, we always talk about this on the show. We do not love real estate in and of itself, but what we love is what real estate can do for us and how it can impact our lives and how it can impact the the lives of our investors as well. And so it's been...
0: But also the people who live in the properties. I mean, right not oh, totally. part kind of your joy of what you do is that you're giving people thrill. a home?
2: Yes. I mean, we're creating jobs. When we talk about the value add that we're doing on the buildings that we're renovating, there's a whole construction team that's looking for work. Maybe not right now, but it's we're creating jobs, right? We've got the property management team on site who, again, we're creating jobs there. And as we're doing the renovations, we're improving the property so that residents who live there get a better experience as well. And then we win because we put the whole deal together. Our investors win because they're leveraging their capital. And I think this is one of the the reasons that I personally fell in love with multifamily syndication was because it was just this whole <laughs> kumbaya of like well, all you of it together
0: as a team. It's not a, too well. It's not a fixed pie, right? Is that for us to grow and do well? Doesn't mean somebody else has to do less. And everything you're describing means more for the residents, more for the people who work. As part of the deal, more for the people who participate in the investment. It's a bigger pie. And I'm a definitely a bigger pie person. Yes, I love it. Well, oh my
2: goodness. Annie, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to chat with Bonnie about before we move into the last part of our show here?
1: Oh man. So many questions. Oh, I could go so on. So many on. <laughs> questions. I wanted to go back just real quick to when you got the job at the White House. And so at that time, did you apply the principles that you now teach women? Did you know that you were supposed to have somebody who was in that inner circle? Were you telling them about yourself? Were you upselling yourself? Things like that? That's a great question.
0: And I think I've had to learn a lot of those things the hard way. And so it's (laughs) nice to help other people leapfrog some of the hard lessons I had to learn. It was actually a difficult interview process. The first person I interviewed with was really harsh with me. And one of the questions he asked, he said, you went to Harvard and you graduated magna cum laude. I don't know if people know all this, but there's cum laude, magna cum laude, and then summa cum laude is the highest. And he said, I graduated summa cum laude. Why didn't you? Can you imagine asking somebody that in, in Harvard? It's like, you graduated magna cum laude. Why didn't you graduate summa cum laude? You could have done better. Oh gosh. And then- What did um, you say? <laughs> yeah, what did you say? <laughs> <I don't remember. laughs> and then in the next interviews, he said, so you got the silver medal in the Olympics. I got silver and bronze. He said, why didn't you get the gold? I kid you not. So these oh are the God. interviews that I have. And I'm thinking, do I even want to work with these people? Yeah, right. what a jerk looking back i think part of it was if you're going to be in politics you are going to work in the white house it does there are sharp elbows it can be a rough and tumble place. so part of it might have been just to see somebody shoves you can you shove back or you're going to fall over so it might have been that they were trying to see if i was prepared so i think i gave him a good answer i jumped back but i didn't like it i thought you know if this is going to be the culture i don't like it and then the third person i interviewed with beau cutter was amazing And he talked about, if you come to work with us on the Economic Council, here's what we're doing. Here's what matters. And part of what he said, you'll appreciate this, was after World War II, all of the departments of the government, the executive branch were created, the agriculture department, the labor department, all these things. And they were created to solve the kinds of problems that we had after World War II. He said, some of the biggest problems we have to solve now fall between the cracks of these departments. So for example, in the Clinton administration, created the school to work program is The getting from school, the way school works doesn't necessarily prepare you to get a job and be successful in a job. And so they were looking at these interfaces. How do we do do this? So that conversation inspired me to actually want to go work there. And so the, the third interview I had was the charm that made me say, you know what, this guy I want to work with. These are the kind of problems I want to help solve. So that was exciting. Just before we get to the last thing, I also want to share a story from being at the Paralympics. Yeah. And I was the third ranked one legged skier on the US team. And they only took three one legged skiers. So I just had barely squeaked onto the team. And nobody expected <laughs> me to beat my teammates, never mind anybody else in the world. So I was just glad to have my ticket to Innsbruck, Austria, to be on the team. I had worked for years and worked odd jobs, moved away from home, all those things to be able to do it. So I was just so excited to be representing the United States of America. When I finished the first run of the first race, it was slalom was the first race. When I finished and all the times were posted, my time was number one in the world. So I had trained hard. I had pushed myself. I had raced a lot against two years. And when I actually showed up for the Paralympics, I did have a chance of winning. I was in the running. And so excited, but you have to do two runs combined time to take home the medal. And it's not like the 100-yard dash where it's always the same thing. It's a totally different course. The second run's completely different from the first run. The snow in the first run gets all chewed up and they set a new course. So I'm in first place going into the second run. I get to the top of the hill and I'm waiting my turn. A few other women go down and they radio back up to the top to tell us women are crashing. There's this icy spot on the course and women are crashing. So I'm thinking... I could win or I could crash. If you don't finish both runs, you're out, you're done. So thinking no heroics, I just have to have a good solid run and I could win this. So, you know, don't go crazy, just stay standing. Right. (laughs) So I'm in the starting gate and the race official counts down three, two, one, go. And you break the timing wand and I'm hitting the red and the blue poles. I was so focused. I wasn't even hearing the people shouting my name and I was sponsored by the National Brotherhood of Skiers, a national black group of skiers. And 32 members of that group came to cheer for me. 32 black people standing on a ski hill kind of stand out, right? <laughs> <laughs> my, my like, Honey, you have a big family. <laughs> anyway, though, I'm going for this run for the gold and I get to where I can see the finish line. I think I made it. I'm over the ice. And that's when I hit it. And I tried to hold on to my edge, but I couldn't do it. So I felt like I had heard many of the skiers had before me and so disappointed, just wanted to disappear. But my training was always to finish no matter what. So I grabbed my equipment, got over the finish line. When the dust cleared, I was still in third place. I won the bronze medal in that race. Now, the woman who beat me in that race, I had beaten her in the first run, right? So when nothing went wrong, I had the fastest time. Now you might think, oh, well, she beat me because she didn't fall she actually did fall. She also fell. All the one-legged women fell on this dangerous icy spot, got up and finished. So if I was the faster skier, I fell and she fell. How did she beat me? She had to have gotten up faster, right? Mm She could ski faster than I could, but she got up faster. So that moment of hesitating, of Mm -hmm. falling down and thinking, oh, it's over. I lost that's how I lost was that moment of feeling sorry for myself. So I was actually quoted on a Starbucks cup. They did a a campaign where they were putting quotes on Starbucks cup and it said, people fall down, winners get up, but sometimes the gold medal winner is just the person who gets up the fastest. So you can probably use that in the investing world, right? It's not every investment is going to go perfect, but you need to get back up and get back in the game. And if you can do that faster, you're going to do better overall, right? What an amazing story. I'm literally
2: just sitting here with like goosebumps. It's just, I think about that often. We got to decide, we got to move, we got to go. And there's no time to waste to think about certain things, right? I mean, certain things you got to take time. But wow, the hesitation miss, piece. The other sports analogies, you miss all the free throws you
0: don't take, right?
2: Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And even when I got into the investing space, I hesitated for a long time six to eight months, was so scared to get into the game and finally realized that the learning is going to come in the mistakes that are made. And I'm never going to learn if I don't get in. And that was years ago. And keep going. Yep. yep get up faster. That's right. I love that. Thank you for sharing that last uh, little story. I appreciate that. So that was such a great piece of the podcast today. All right. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around your life and money. So the first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and
0: intentional life by design? One of the things that I've done is I did a TED talk on how to have a first aid kit for your attitude. And I think that's something I can give to your listeners as a gift Is say, you can look that up. And it's helpful. This is this concept that we were just talking about is get back in the game. And one way to help yourself do it is to have a first aid kit for your attitude. We have first aid kits for a cut or a bruise or a burn. But for our attitude, we really need to be able to apply first aid so that you can get back in the game quickly, just mm-hmm. like we said. And so that TED Talk talks about how to do that. And you can share it with your kids. You can share it with your coworkers. And you can have a Zoom where your coworkers get together and you say, Hey, we're gonna share what's in our first aid kids get it. And you can help your kids to create a first aid kit for your attitude. And sometimes the conversation about it makes a big difference, not just doing it by yourself, but doing it with your family or doing it with your coworkers means that you can encourage each other too. Is here, put this in your first aid kit. It creates a language around being resilient, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what is in your first aid kit? Oh, that's such a great (laughs) question. One of the things I love is that my mother who passed away more than a decade ago had given me, it's a little sachet with a note on it that says, cherish yourself. And so what I do is I encourage people to put something in there I could give you a gift. I could give you a candle or a pretty picture and say, here, put this in your first aid kit. But the things that you choose for yourself that are really meaningful, like this note from my mother who passed away, that's going to remind me that whatever's happening today, I can put that in perspective. When she says cherish yourself, that was so hard for her. She was the Black kid who was told, you can't go to the white school. This is the girl who's father left before she was born. So finding that thing that really inspires you, and it shouldn't be one thing, you can make a first aid kit. And you can also make it virtual is physical things, you can put some physical things on your desk or something. But taking pictures of some things and putting it on your phone or having thank you notes from people that see the great things you do on a day when you feel like nobody appreciates you, you can look at those thank you notes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that a lot. One thing I recently started doing is sending myself flowers.
0: So oh, I, love to,
2: that. I know I love flowers and usually we're traveling around a bunch right now. And so I have flowers delivered to the house when we arrive. And so it's like a nice little gift to myself in a way to remind myself to enjoy and have a good time and live fully in the moment. And so I love that. All right. So second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you might be able to share with us today that'll make an impact
0: on our listeners' lives? Another life or money hack. (laughs) It's a really simple one. (laughs) Drink water. And when we don't drink water, the research shows that your brain just gets dehydrated before anything else. And so drinking water helps you to make better decisions, helps you to stay yeah. more positive. It's such a simple thing. We tend to forget, even if you're a good water drinker, you probably forget to do it when you're under pressure. And yeah. that's when you need it the most, right? Is so it I'm most- going to
1: drink some water right now. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers.
0: There's one of the simplest things in the world, and there's actually a ton of research that shows it's going to help your, your brain. You're going to make better decisions, be less afraid all those things. So really Mm -hmm. simple idea. And remember to do it not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. Yeah, I start every morning. I'm like a little
2: drill sergeant walking around my house. Did everybody drink your (laughs) sip of water? Like, because that's the first thing I do is 16 ounces of water right in the morning, every morning, and it starts the day off. Awesome. So love that. All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now, Bonnie, to make the world a better place?
0: You did warn me that you were going to ask that. And (laughs) the thing that came to mind for me is raising good kids. I think that takes the ultimate belief in the future, right? To raise kids. You guys have kids, so you know, it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart, right? And so raising kids to be good people and helping them to fall down and get up and helping them to believe in themselves and You can't do it for them. There's an old yoga saying, you can't chew their food for them. (laughs) (laughs) So helping them to make their own decisions, to find their strength, to fall down and get up and all of those things takes an incredible faith in the future to raise good, strong kids. So I guess that's what I would say about that.
1: Love that. And tell everybody, what are the ages of your kids now? My husband and I have a blended family. And so Mm -hmm. we have 26, 25 and 20. And we were just talking before the show about how difficult those 20s can be, both living through them and parenting through them. (laughs) People know the toddler years are hard. You know, the teen years are hard. Getting into college is hard. Getting
0: out and getting your first job is hard. But nobody told me how hard the 20s were (laughs) going to (laughs) be.
1: Well, it's a great service you're providing to the world and parenting commend all the parents out there who are listening. And like you were saying, Bonnie, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of resilience and courage and perseverance. They
0: give you a lot of return on investment, right? Is kids make you stronger and kids make you a better person and kids make you figure out what your values really are. So they have a lot to offer us. You got to be all in.
1: Yes, they definitely show you parts of yourself you never knew were there. That's for sure. Well, Bonnie, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation, but I know our listeners are going to be curious and want to follow up and learn more about you and all that you're doing. So tell them what's the best place they can go.
0: Go to com and find out a lot about me there. I did a podcast, so you can look that up too is... And I'm just blanking in the name of my podcast. That's terrible. Take a drink of
1: water. Maybe it'll help. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: straight up. It's straight up. That's what it is. Because it's a pun on straight up talk and going straight mm-hmm. up the corporate ladder. And so in the podcast, and you can go wherever you go for podcasts. So Apple Podcasts it's in a number of places. But it's advice for, especially for women, minorities, people with disabilities. We interview a whole bunch of different people with those areas of expertise, veterans, on climbing the corporate ladder while being different, not being typical in many ways. And what are the challenges? What are their advice? With Andres Tapias about being Hispanic or Latino and climbing the corporate ladder, and he's written several books about it and just has such insights into what are the challenges? You get mixed messages from your culture versus the culture that it takes to succeed in corporate America. And how do you navigate that in a way that keeps you whole, that doesn't destroy who you are. So you get that, whether it's talking about disability or talking about veterans, all of those conversations are there. So that's great. So you can go to bonniestjohn.com. You can look up my podcast straight up. I think those are good things
1: to do. All right. Well, to all of our listeners, we'll have those links for you in the show notes. Bonnie St. John, best-selling author of several books, podcast host, sought after keynote speaker, Olympic skier and medalist and CEO of the Blue Circle Leadership Institute. Bonnie, thank you so, so much for being here, inspiring our listeners and sharing your insights and wisdom with us.
0: Thank you, Annie and Julie, and I appreciate what you do. I appreciate being part of your community that is thriving. And your examples as strong women and mothers who are out there changing the world and making a difference, I value that too. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to The Life & Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life & Money Show community on Facebook.
1: And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring bring you amazing new conversations.